Let's turn in God's word now to the book of the Psalms. Psalm 119. When I ask you to turn to Habakkuk or Zephaniah, I give you a little more time. Those are tricky to find. You get no extra time today. This is the longest book in the Old Testament, and this psalm is as long as it gets. Psalm 119, although I suppose I should give you some time to locate where I'm going to read. I'm going to start reading for us at verse 89 and go down through 96, that particular eight-verse portion in this psalm. And let's get our bearings as we turn there. These past few weeks, we've been learning from God's Word about God's Word. That's been our theme. We've been learning from the sacred writings about them. Among other things, what we've learned is that Jesus is the Bible's main character. That's where we got started. We've also learned that the writings that make up this book, they were breathed out by God so that we might be taught and rebuked and corrected and trained and even saved. We've also learned that there is great blessedness, there is true profound happiness that comes from living by this book, by the writings we find in it. And that includes, that blessedness includes, and this is what we focused on last week, the blessedness of forgiveness, the tremendous sigh of relief that comes from knowing that we've been forgiven by God. That was last week. That was Psalm 32. Remember, David himself experienced that relief, that blessedness. Psalm 32, he said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. So David himself experienced that, and then having experienced it, he called everyone else to join him, to experience that along with him. He said, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. So that was last week. That was Psalm 32. This week, another Sunday on this theme, learning from God's Word, about God's Word, likely our last Sunday in this mini-series. So one more Sunday together to consider what God's Word says about God's Word, although just to be clear, it's not like after today we will have exhausted the subject, far from it. And in fact, that's exactly our point here this morning. That's precisely the lesson that we're going to glean from God's Word today, which is that there is something wonderfully inexhaustible about that Word, and we should be grateful for it. So listen now, Psalm 119, I'll begin reading at verse 89, but we're going to focus on the last verse, which is 96. Forever, O Lord, your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures To all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me. But I consider your testimonies. And then he says, 
I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this glorious, inexhaustible word that you've given us, and we thank you as well for your inexhaustible mercy, which is new every morning, including this morning, and never runs out on us. And that's why we come to you in prayer time and time again, as we do right now again, to seek your mercy. To say, deal kindly with us by word and spirit. Open our eyes to behold the truth here and to be encouraged, to be strengthened. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The familiar saying goes, all good things come to an end. All good things come to an end. I remember um, somebody making the observation once in one of our Sunday morning sermon discussions. He made the observation that for him as a kid, the worst day of the year was December 26th. And I remember when he said it, there were knowing nods and hmms around the room. December 26th, because that was the day when it hit you as a kid that the best of all kid things had come to an end. Christmas was over. And not only that, but by then, by the 26th, you had probably broken at least one of your new toys. The great December crash. I remember as a kid feeling that same way about the Saturday that was the last day of our family beach week. That, for me, was the day when the greatest of all kid things had come to an end. In fact, I've been seeing a commercial lately for some travel service that says something like, the last day of vacation is still vacation. And every time I see that commercial, I think, oh, no, it's not. The last day of vacation is gloom and cloud and heartbreak and drama. Beach week was over, and it was compounded by the fact that we always went to the beach mid-late August, and so summer was coming to an end. All good things come to an end, so goes the saying. And it's not just that they eventually run out or come to a conclusion. It's also that even at their best, even when you have them and have them fully, They've got their flaws and cracks. Christmas Day, even at its best, had its little tensions and disappointments. Beach Week, even at its best, had its sunburn and sand in the sheets. So it's not just in terms of quantity or duration. It's also in terms of quality. We're constantly finding out how limited are the good things of this life even when you're a big kid. Even as you get older, you still have a sense of this. We still have a sense of this aspect of human experience. Good things have their limits, whether it's an enjoyable vacation or a solid relationship or a good health. You know this. 
from your experience. You've tasted this. And in fact, I wonder, even right now in this moment, what comes to your mind? I've offered up a few examples. I wonder what comes to your mind as you stop and think about this. What has it been in your own life that has had the effect of powerfully impressing this reality upon you, the truth that all good things have their limits? Now, here's the question. When that happens, when you're reminded of that reality, perhaps in some especially powerful way, either because there's some blessing that you've been enjoying that's run out, or because there's some blessing you've been enjoying that's starting to show flaws and cracks, or because there's some blessing that you're still enjoying and it's great, but deep down you have this haunting sense that the grains of sand are falling through the hourglass and it's only a matter of time. When that happens, when that hits you, whatever the circumstance might be, whatever the blessing might be, what do you do? Where do you go? Where can you go for comfort? Because it might start to feel like everything, I mean absolutely everything, is, is marked by that, by limits and flaws and conclusion. Well, here's a vital place you can go. The recognition that No, it's not true to say that absolutely all good things come to an end. It's not true to say that without exception all good things have their limits. It's not true because there is something that doesn't come to an end. It doesn't run out. It doesn't turn out to have flaws and cracks. And it is the Word of God. It'll never let you down like that. And and you will find it to be so beautifully unlike all of these other things that you've found in the created order to have their limits. And the psalmist here in the one verse that we're training our attention on, he brings this out for us. Look again at verse 96. In fact, if it helps, because it was just one verse, I put it in your bulletin. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Now, let's let's think about that verse. It it falls pretty neatly into these two halves, as psalm verses often do. So the first half is this. I have seen a limit to all perfection. So he's describing his experience in the world. He's making an observation, and the observation that he makes implies that there is a kind of perfection that's to be found in this world. There is a kind of completeness or fullness that we actually do sometimes experience. There are some things, even in this world, that are more or less what they're meant to be. Completeness, fullness. And that's worth emphasizing because it would be a mistake on our part, though you can understand why somebody would lapse into this mistake. It would be a mistake on our part to become so overwhelmed with all of the sinfulness and all of the brokenness that are to be found in this world that we allow ourselves to become practically blind to the goodness that's to be seen as well. Even in this cursed world, even in this world that is full of fallen men and women, including ourselves, there are some things that are more or less what they're meant to be. 
an enjoyable vacation, a loving relationship, a healthy body, a job well done, a satisfying meal. That's why I wanted you to hear those words from Philippians 4 earlier in our service, after what Paul says about prayer. Remember, he says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I mean, what that implies is that there are realities, even in this cursed world, that match those descriptions. And and it wouldn't be limited to the things of God. But even in the created order, the things of creation, we can dwell upon and be encouraged by. So we can start there, and I, and I want to challenge you there. Can, can you see that? Do you have your eyes open to recognize that in the world around you? Or have you allowed yourself to be so overwhelmed by sin and brokenness that you can't see that anymore? And as I say, it's totally understandable why somebody might reach that point. I mean, especially lately. I opened up the newspaper this morning and had to close it right quick. Uh, there, there are things in the news these days, and I just couldn't go there. And I suspect we're all feeling some of that these days. But we just need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves by those tides and waves to be pushed away from the goodness, the perfection, as the psalmist puts it, that's actually to be observed in the world. So the goodness is there, but what does he say? He says, these things have their limits. He says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, all good things, in the created order, have their limits. And that's because they are finite. The things of creation are just that. They are created. They are not creator. And that's because they're under the curse ever since the fall. Things are stained. Things are marred. Things are dented. And so as I was saying before, it gets to both quantity and quality. Quantity, good things run out. Quality, good things have their flaws and cracks. A limit. To all perfection. And notice the way he puts it. He says, I have seen a limit to all perfection. I've seen it. This is not merely a logical conclusion that he's come to as a result of reflecting upon certain foundational truths. This isn't just a logical conclusion from book study. This is a personal testimony from personal experience. Now, to be clear, it certainly is a logical conclusion that you can come to as a result of reflecting upon foundational truths. So you can reflect upon the truth that God made all things good and he sustains the world to this day with goodness in it. And then you can reflect upon the truth that even the good things of this world are finite, they're limited. And then you can add to the truth that this world, even with its present goodness, is still presently under the curse full of men and women who are fallen and broken. So, yeah, you can sit in your study, and you can close the doors, and you can close your eyes, and you can reflect upon all of that, and you will come to the conclusion that there's a limit to all perfection. But for the psalmist, it's more than that. 
he hasn't just reasoned himself to this. He has seen it. And here he's willing to say so. Personal testimony. There are so many passages like that in the Bible. This is just one of them. So, for example, Psalm 37. Psalm 37. David doesn't just say, I've come to the conclusion that God provides. He says, I've seen it. Psalm 37. He says, I've been young and now I am old and yet have not seen the righteous forsaken. David's saying, I've had my eyes wide open. And here's what I've seen and not seen. On the negative side, it's like the wise man of Proverbs. He doesn't just say, I've concluded that adultery can ruin a man. He says, I've seen it. And let me tell you what I saw. It's like the wise man of Ecclesiastes. He doesn't just say, I've concluded that all is vanity. He says, I've seen it. I've seen it in my own life, in my own experience. In fact, in many ways, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is an extended reflection upon the truth that we're considering here, that there's a limit to all perfection, and you're kidding yourself if you think otherwise and expect the world to be otherwise. Personal testimony. For that matter, it's like David in Psalm 32, which we looked at last week. He doesn't just say, blessed is the one who's forgiven. He goes on after saying that, To adding his own amen, he says, I've seen it. I've tasted and seen in my own experience that it's true. Trust me. Follow me. And so we're getting something like that here in this one verse in Psalm 119. The psalmist is saying, I've seen it. And and there's something very important to be learned just from that. We can learn, we can be reminded that Christianity, our religion, is an eyes-wide-open religion. It's not head in the sand. It's regularly caricatured that way. And I suppose, sadly, it is sometimes practiced that way. But it isn't that way, not really. Ours is not a head-in-the-sand faith. It's not see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, or in this case, admit no limits, acknowledge no flaws. No, we admit them. We acknowledge them. And not only that, but we expect them. So we're not thrown into a tailspin of despair whenever we actually encounter those limits and flaws. Our faith is made of hardier stuff than that. So that, that, so that we're not undone, we're not unraveled when it hits us in some new way that good things have their limits. So our eyes are wide open not only to read, not only to read the Bible, but also so that we can look around and observe, observe the world around us. And then our eyes are open and our mouths are too to bear witness to what we have seen. So the psalmist starts there. That's the first half of our verse. I have seen a limit to all perfection. So that's the first half of the verse. That's the first part. That's the realism part. Thankfully, there is a part two. There is a second half of this verse, and it is the contrast. After he says, I've seen a limit to all perfection, what comes next? But your commandment 
is exceedingly broad. But your commandment is exceedingly broad. So in contrast to what he has just described about experience in this world, in contrast to that stands the word of God. Now notice here he does call it your commandment. Now that does not mean that he has in view just one particular commandment that you find in the Bible about what to do or not do or say or not say. For that matter, that doesn't mean that he only has in view the whole body of commandments that we find in Scripture about what to do and what to say. Here in this verse, when he says your commandment, he's got in view the word of God as a whole. And he's got it in view as that which tells us, which commands us, what we're to believe and how we're to live. Because that's what the Bible is. That's what it's for. That's why God has spoken what he has spoken in this book. Our our shorter catechism, pretty early on, asks the question, what do the scriptures principally teach? And our catechism comes back with the answer, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That's what the word teaches. And the point is, we are effectively commanded to believe what it teaches to be true and to obey what it says to do and to say and to think. In other words, the whole of God's word comes with a you must written on it. In a sense, the whole of God's word is his commandment. Even the good news of the gospel that we find in the Bible, the good news of salvation, this this staggering free gift that's offered to be received by faith, even the gospel has a you must on it. Because you must, you ought, you're called, you're commanded to believe that good news and be saved. That's why over in 2 Thessalonians, Paul can talk about those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 1.8. Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So even, even the, the good news, the offer of salvation in the Bible... That comes with commanding force, like everything else that you find in the Bible around it. It has a you must. It's not just a polite suggestion or a nice idea. So here in this verse, he's got view the word of God as a whole. And what does he say about it? What does he say about the commandment of God? He says it is exceedingly broad exceedingly broad. He uses a word here that means something like wide and spacious. And and even putting it that way brings helpful mental images to mind. You might picture a lush green field that you can run in and play in and keep running. Running and running and you'll never ever reach some nasty brush line that means you've reached the edge of the field. Or thinking like an ancient Israelite, you might picture a land flowing with milk and honey, a great land for a great people. And that people can just keep spreading out on that land and cultivating it and enjoying it and living on it and never run out of room, wide, spacious, exceedingly broad. 
It's a beautiful thing to say about God's word. And, and let's unpack it a little bit. What does it even mean to say that about the Bible? About God's commanding word that it's exceedingly broad. What, what are we getting at? When we say that, what is the psalmist getting at when he says it? Well, there are a number of things we can notice here. First of all, this. The word of God is exceedingly broad in that the God whose word it is, the God who's revealed here, is, as the theologians like to say, incomprehensible. And remember what that means. The incomprehensibility of God doesn't mean that God makes no sense to us. It doesn't mean that. Thankfully, it doesn't mean that. No, the incomprehensibility of God means that with with our finite minds, we can't wrap our understanding all the way around him and, and take him all the way in. So this revelation of God, which is understandable to our finite minds, that revelation does not exhaust the being of God, who is so far above and beyond us. And that's just it. This is his word. These writings were breathed out by him, by this God whose measure we cannot take with our finite mind. No wonder, then, that we can say his word, his commanding word, is exceedingly broad. So there's that, first of all. There's this, second of all, as well. The word of God is exceedingly broad in that the love of God that's revealed here is beyond So so not just the being of God, but also the love that he has set on us beyond measure. And Paul says that in Ephesians when he's telling them how he prays for them. He says, I pray for you. This is Ephesians 3. I pray for you that you'll be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I've always loved that, that phrase. I want you to know something that's beyond knowing. In the sense that I, I want you to know just how glorious this love is. I pray for you that you'd be able to grasp the immeasurable measure of the love of God. So, so that's part of it as well. This exceeding broadness of God's word. Here's another point. So the first was the incomprehensibility of God. The second is the immeasurability of the love of God. Here's a third. The word of God is exceedingly broad in that there is a wonderful richness and complexity about the wide range of truth that we find here when we open it and start reading it. You can never get to the point that you don't have anything more to learn. You're constantly seeing new things. And that's because it's got so many things to say on so many different subjects. God, creation, man, sin, redemption, church, world, earth, heaven, angels, devils, time, eternity. And not only can you explore its teachings, but you can also begin to see in new ways how these different teachings connect with one another and reinforce one another. So this is something I said a few weeks back when we turned to that Second Timothy passage. Remember, God's word breathed out so that we might be taught. It's one of the beauties of the Bible that everyone can keep learning from it so long as they live.
And hand in hand with that, not just the wonderful richness and complexity of the truth that we find there, but there's also a wonderful richness and complexity about our lives as creatures made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made in His image. Our lives are rich and challenging. And what that means is that you never get to the point that you don't have anything more to learn about how this word applies to your life and to the world in which you're living it. So in all of these different ways, this is an exceedingly broad word that God has spoken. So there's plenty of room here, plenty of room for thinking, because you can always keep learning, and there's plenty of room for living. The Word of God reaches as far as a human life can go. Wherever we travel, whatever work we do, whatever experiences we encounter by God's providence, the Word of God is there. It's there to govern. It's there to guide. It's there to speak. Now, just to be clear, that's not because the Bible is a word, a textbook about every subject. It is not that. This is something that um, the kids and I talked about in our Summer Bible Institute back in August. I said, look, if you've got a math test tomorrow and you forget to bring home your math book to study for that test, don't reach for the Bible thinking that the Bible is going to be what your math book would have been. It will not, and I think we can say rather confidently that if you approach it that way, the test will not go well. And hopefully it will be the last time you make that mistake. So the Bible is not a textbook about every subject. It doesn't say everything. And so in a sense, we can insist, and that without apology, that the Word of God in, in its own way is limited. This too is ground we covered in our Summer Bible Institute this year. The Bible doesn't cover every conceivable topic, and even the topics that it does cover, the things that we rightly expect it to speak to, it doesn't cover those topics exhaustively. So, for example, as we've noticed in this mini-series, one of the things we learn is that Jesus is the Bible's main character. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us everything about Him. The Bible leaves us with plenty of unanswered questions about Jesus Himself. John says so at the very end of his gospel. It's the last thing he says. The end of chapter 21, John says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. All that to say we can admit this about the Bible. It is in its own way limited, which is a glory and not a deficiency. It's not a word about every subject. It doesn't say everything even about the subjects it covers. But what it does say has the effect of governing everything, interpreting everything, integrating everything. What the Bible does say becomes a lens through which we see all things and seek to understand them and make good use of them, even if it doesn't speak to them directly. It's exceedingly broad like that. It's roomy like that. And one of the great comforts is this. The Word of God is so broad, so wide, so spacious that it's even spacious enough for sinners 
And, and that is real comfort. So that when you sin against God, when you fail him in some way, it's not as if you've gone so far that you've ended up somewhere where the word does not reach. Isn't that good news? When you sin against God, it's not as if you're now standing on ground that's beyond the borders of the word so that you're left without hope. No, even there, even in that place where you're now standing, whatever you've done, however you've ended up there, the word of God still addresses you. It still commands you. There's still a you must that you hear from these pages. You must repent. You must look to Christ for forgiveness. You must rise up restored as one who is sighing the relief of forgiveness. You must not quit because God has not quit on you. And that's just one of the ways in which the Word of God is so much more broad and wide and spacious than what we find to be true in our human relationships. Sadly, in human relationships, sometimes when you sin, when you fail, that's when you discover how limited that relationship is in all the wrong ways, how limited that other person's love was all along. As soon as you let them down, you have this sinking feeling That you have placed yourself beyond the borders of their love. And there's no returning. At least not for a while. But the word of God, happily, is so much broader than that. It is exceedingly broad. Broad enough for sinners like ourselves. You cannot place yourself beyond its merciful reach. Cannot wander so far that you've left gospel ground. So in all of these ways, the psalmist is saying something that is so important for us to grasp. I've seen a limit to all perfection. And haven't we seen it too? But your commandment is exceedingly broad. That's what he's getting at here in this verse. It's two halves. And I love... um, I love what John Calvin says as he reflects upon this verse. Calvin, the great theologian and Protestant reformer of the 16th century. So Calvin takes this verse and reflects upon it. And here's what he says. Quote, The idea which is conveyed here is that after he had considered all things, especially those which are distinguished by the greatest perfection, he found that they were nothing when compared with God's word, inasmuch as all other things will soon come to an end, whereas the word of God stands ever firm in its own eternity. And he keeps going. He says, whence it follows that we have no ground for apprehending that it will, that is, the word will forsake us in the midst of our course. It is called broad to denote that though a man may mount above the heavens or descend into the lowest depths or traverse the whole space from the right to the left hand, yet he will not reach farther than the truth of God conducts us. And then he concludes, it it remains that our minds should embrace this vast extent, and that will be the case when they shall have ceased to enclose and shut themselves up within the narrow limits of this world. 
end quote. That's how John Calvin puts it. And, and here's what I love about that. I love it whenever God's word takes the assumptions and the stereotypes and the distortions and the allegations of the world around us and flips them on their head. Because what's the stereotype? What's the allegation about us Christians? Well, among other things, it's that we are narrow-minded. Because we've embraced this one book as a divine revelation. And therefore, we are determined to rule out of bounds whatever this one book rules out of bounds for faith and life. And so the charge is that we Christians are narrow-minded. The allegation is that we need to open up, need to broaden our thinking. We need to expand our intellectual and moral horizons. We need to branch out beyond the limits that this one book would place upon us. We're narrow-minded. And Psalm 119 Verse 96 takes that and flips it on its head, and I love it. And, and, and the way Calvin puts it brings that out. He says, we are those who have ceased to enclose and shut themselves up within the narrow limits of this world. It, it takes the allegation and flips it to repudiate the Bible and to live entirely within the confines of this world, to live lives that are hemmed in by nature and by naturalistic assumptions, that's the true narrowness. And to the contrary, to live according to God's word is to be ushered into a wide and spacious place, a place that's good for our souls. Now, it's certainly true, we won't deny it, we have embraced this one book as a unique divine revelation. And therefore, it's also true, we don't apologize for this either, that we are determined to rule out whatever this one book rules out for faith and life. That's all true. But the point is to live within those limits, to live and think and feel and act and move and breathe within the limits that this book would place upon us, that is to enter into a whole way of life that's actually wide and spacious in all the right ways. That's to have vast fields where our souls can roam and run and work and play. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And he can say that. We can be called like that precisely because... The word is exceedingly broad in all of the ways that we've considered today. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And there is nothing narrow or constricting about that. The whole of life comes to be shot through with light that emanates from this word. The whole of life becomes ennobling and God-honoring. Who's narrow now? And I want to say that especially to our students this morning. Grade school, high school, college school, grad school. You're almost certainly going to meet up with this allegation at some point. There's a good chance you already have. The allegation that because you're a Christian... Therefore, you're narrow-minded, and therefore, you need to set yourself free from the limits of this book, these ancient 
writings, its truth claims, its moral commandment. So you want to be ready for that charge. You want to have an answer for it. On the one hand, we do not apologize for the limits that this book certainly does place on our thinking and our living. We boast in those limits. We say, thank God for them. And no one in their right mind, whether they admit it or not, really wants to be set free from all limits altogether. No one actually tries to live that way, including the person who's charging you with being narrow-minded. But on the other hand, that does not leave us constricted and robbed. That gives us all the room we could possibly want for human living. And that gives us a lifetime and then eternity to explore that space. So here's the question as we all go into a new week. Are you ready I say that to all of us this morning. Are you ready, as we go into a new week, to butt up against the limits of the good things of this world? Because you will, in one way or another, perhaps in a way that really drives the point home. The things of this world are finite, they're flawed, don't kid yourself. And in a lot of different ways, people in this world are not ready for that. Not ready for limits, don't know how to handle the limitations that they encounter, and it shows in the way that they respond. So, for example, a husband can't handle the limitations of his wife, his good, faithful wife, and so he leaves her to find another one, thinking he'll find one who's unlimited. Or a citizen can't handle the limitations of the legal system, even when it works, so he resorts to rage or vengeance. Or a church member can't handle the flaws of his church or of its ministers, and so he leaves it to find another one. Or a child can't handle the end of Christmas. So on December 26th, he pouts and hits his sister. Or he can't handle the end of Beach Week. So when Beach Week ends, instead of being grateful for it, he's bitter and he starts combing the calendar for the next big Thing to look forward to because that's all he's got. That's all life is, the next thing. There are people like that who in a lot of different ways just don't know how to handle the limitations that they encounter. So what about you? Are you ready for limits? Open your eyes and you'll see them. Here the psalmist says, I have seen them and you'll be able to say it as well. And part of being ready for them, part of being spiritually equipped to handle them, is knowing that the Word of God is exceedingly broad. That's your refuge. That's your consolation. The Word of God has plenty of room for your thinking and living, and even for your falling and rising. And let me say, that's got to be part of your personal experience as well. The, The psalmist doesn't quite put it that way here. That's implied. You want it to be the case not only that you have seen the limits of perfection around you, but also that you have seen, that you have tasted and seen that the gospel is good and true. Because that too becomes part of the way you answer the charge. The charge that we're so narrow-minded 
that were constricted and robbed by embracing this book. You want it to be the case in your personal experience and not just as an intellectual conviction that you, you found, no, no, no. There's exceeding broadness here and I wouldn't trade it for anything. There's our refuge. There's our consolation. So are you still exploring the scriptures? What they mean, how they apply, never stop exploring. You'll never get to the point that there's no place farther to go, and we can be grateful for that. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this word, this commanding word that you have spoken. We do thank you for the goodness that we see, that we experience in this world. These are all good gifts from you. And yet we've also seen the limits of those good things. What a blessing it is then that we have this word from you that is exceedingly broad. Plenty of room for thinking and feeling and living and even falling and rising. Thank you that it is an exceedingly broad word, even for sinners. So help us, we pray, as we go into a new week, to love this word which shines light that emanates into every corner of our experience. May we find that to be true and say so to the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.